Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Good morning. Pastor Dennis, I really appreciate it. I don't even have to call for a rambunctious volunteer to grab Bibles because Pastor Dennis is on it. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Word of God with you today, please throw a hand up real quick. Pastor Dennis is going to get you one. And I believe we're on page 888 if he hands you that hardback black Bible. Everybody else, if you're familiar with the Bible, go to John chapter 7. Today's sermon is called Smarter Than the Average Bear. Raise your hand. Without any struggle, you understand the pop culture reference, please, just so I know. Raise your hand if you only understood that because TV Land ran the reruns in the 90s. I've told you guys before, I have a decent I Love Lucy knowledge, but it's because of TV Land. You're right, it is. We're going to run across a text that, uh, if I'm honest, it's a bit tough, it's a bit controversial, because Jesus is dealing with hard hearts. How many of you have read the Bible before and you've seen how tender Jesus is toward tender hearts, and yet he has to be really tough with those who have tough hearts? Anybody seen that before? Okay, if you're new to church, you haven't seen that, I'm letting you know, but if you've been around the block a time or two, You see angry Jesus come out, and you go, whoa, that scares me a little bit. Well, look at what he was dealing with. When religious leaders stand up and basically call him a liar, call him demon-possessed, and he knows that he, belief in him, is the only way to reconcile lost sinners to the Father, every threat on his identity isn't something he's taking personal and reacting the way you and I would. He is seeing an assault on those he wants to redeem. And he will not let anything get in the way of his blood coming to repentant sinners, washing them clean and reconciling them to the Father. Just like mama gets angry when a three-year-old tries to run out in the street. You freak out and you grab that arm and you violate that three-year-old's sovereign will. Okay? You want to see Jesus angry? Try to lie to the sheep in a way that will send the sheep after some false shepherd. Try to do that while Jesus is in the room. Just try it. And you will get the angry Jesus. Okay? Mike is with me. All right. And we're going to see today, part of the conflict at least, is Jesus' knowledge that is astounding to them, which is why I... Couldn't think of a better title. Jesus is smarter than the average bear. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, are not going to know what to do with it. So, starting at verse 14, again, John chapter 7, starting at verse 14, we're going to read 11 verses together. So, backstory if you weren't with us. Jesus' brothers don't believe in him, but he can do these miracles. Hey, take this show on the road. You could get paid if you go to Vegas and do that trick. This would be really cool. 
Jesus says, no, I'm not going to Jerusalem, glorifying myself now. That's going to lead to a cross earlier than my father's will. He chooses to go secretly. So he's there at the festival of booths in Jerusalem. Verse 14, then midway through the festival. So he's been there half a week. Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? They asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks the truth, not lies. Now it gets real bad. Are you ready? Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. The crowd replied, now, so who's the you? The Pharisees are the you, because they were the ones that, that anyway. The Pharisees, this is essentially a conversation between Jesus and the religious elite, but there, there are crowds around because of a festival. So everybody gets to listen in, but he's talking with the Pharisees. So it's Twitter, right? Everything's public. Okay. There are lots of hurt feelings, and it's public. So yeah, Twitter. Okay. You're trying to kill me. The crowd replied, so that's why I gave that distinction, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees, conspicuously silent at the accusation, you guys are trying to get me killed. Pharisees say nothing. You heard the phrase deafening silence? The pastors in the room are like, because they were just at a meeting last night trying to figure out how to kill him, right? The crowd replied, because the crowd has no idea what the Pharisees are talking about and planning. They only heard about miracles. They have no idea why the pastors would be trying to get together to kill God. That doesn't make sense. The crowd replies, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, and this is really interesting, his answer, and yet he's still essentially talking to the Pharisees. I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. What happened? Back in John 5 was the last time that he was here in Jerusalem, and a man who could not walk, he heals him, and he can walk. Okay? I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too. When you obey Moses' law of circumcision, actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if, it is, if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as to not break the law of Moses. All right, so if you're new to church, let me unpack it. Levitical law says if you have a son on the eighth day, you circumcise him. Levitical law also says do not work on the Sabbath. The, the last day of the week, Saturday. So if your son, if you have a baby boy on a Friday, ladies, can, can anybody back me up if you've given birth before? You don't exactly get to pick when that kid shows up, right? I understand we're in the 21st century now and everybody thinks they can put it on a calendar and they induce all that, but for most of human history, you don't get to pick when this kid arrives. A baby boy arrives on a Friday and he's supposed to be circumcised now on a Saturday Eight days later. Uh-oh, but the law also tells us not to work. And the religious types have built out like some 300 different things that are defined as work. We're not supposed to be doing really anything on a Saturday. What do we do? 
Do we follow the principle of not working on the Sabbath? Or do we make sure to go ahead and circumcise our sons on the correct day? And Judaism, altogether, Pharisees, Sadducees, in one of these rare moments of agreement, had said, we're going to go ahead and circumcise our boys even if it's a Saturday. That had been decided. They decided carefully, thoughtfully, maybe prayerfully, that the principle of Sabbath, the principle of not working on a Saturday, that this was a good thing because it was about obedience to God. Does that make sense? If you're obeying God, it should not violate some other principle that God gave you. Does that make sense? That was the conclusion they came to. And now Jesus is calling their bluff going, uh, excuse me, I healed a man on Saturday and you guys are upset. I gave life. I brought hope. I showed God-like authority over dark things. And you're upset about it. Second part of verse 23. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Holy Spirit, it is not lip service that if I bring my opinions today, we will not get much good out of it. We will not be blessed. We will not be challenged. We will not be encouraged. Because I am not the Word of God. Holy Spirit, teach us your Word. Please. Allow us to respond to it with joy. God, help us deep down in our bosom. Help us to believe that Jesus is blessing us even when he says something tough, that he's doing it for our good. God, give us the humility to really listen to the text today. Give me the humility to listen to the text today. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Three thoughts from the text. Number one, and this should scare you, amazement doesn't create allegiance. He just said it. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much, all this Bible stuff, when we know he has not been trained? Everybody knew back then who had been called as a disciple of which rabbi. They were entire schools, what we would almost think of as a school. You followed a person, not an institutional name. And everybody knew Jesus was from Galilee. And I need you to understand the Judean perspective on Galilee. This is roughly akin to being in Washington, D.C. or New York, and somebody goes, isn't he from Montgomery, Alabama? Whatever you think of the North's disdain for the South, I need you to see that. Judeans believed themselves as fundamentally more religious, more devoted to God. They were 
purposefully had put themselves, some of them were born there, in closer proximity to the temple to fulfill all that the law required. And Galileans were Jews, but they were so far away, like clearly you couldn't be that committed. I had a friend when I was in real estate who's Mormon, and she introduced me to a term I had never heard before, a term called a Utah Mormon. And it was that exact same principle. Like there's this, this, there's this pride, I guess, like if you were really that committed, you wouldn't live so far away. It's not that hard. Just pick up and move to Utah. Come on, you know, if you were really hardcore. Jesus is from Galilee, and we know that he did not sit with one of the big teachers of the day through years and years of discipleship, trying to become like his rabbi. He was trained as a carpenter. So we know at age 11, 12, 13, when kids are starting to wrap up their formal education, if dad had enough money and could send them through all the layers of Jewish education, that maybe by age 12, 13, a rabbi looks at those best of the best young men and says, two words in English, follow me. That's what's crazy about a carpenter saying those words. Since when do carpenters act like rabbis unless they were taught by God. And they are amazed. How does he have this understanding? How does he have this knowledge? They're amazed. And they're the same people that were here in Jerusalem or that heard about it, that Jesus had healed a man who couldn't walk. They were amazed. And it still did not give them a heart that wanted to ally themselves with Messiah. You know, you can be surprised and it doesn't change your core allegiances. Surprise is not enough. Amazement is not enough. Shock is not enough. Did Pharaoh have more reasons than you to be amazed at the power of God? He thinks that he is, I mean, Ramses, Ram, say, like, from Ra. His name was literally Son of God. Problem? Ramses thinks that his father Ra is the Lord God over all the other Egyptian gods, like the God over gnats. And then he can't control gnats, but Moses can. And he thinks his father is sovereign over the God of the Nile. Then what? Isn't it really interesting that Pharaoh's magicians could simulate it, but they couldn't fix the Nile? That's cute. Oh, that's real cute. Moses turned the entire life source of this country to undrinkable blood, and you take, what, some vessel of something? You recreate it. What? So you feel good about yourself? Oh, my magicians are as awesome as Moses. You still can't drink. You did not undo what Moses did. Pharaoh was smashed by the power and the authority of Yahweh. He had every reason. If amazement at God's power, if that alone would create a worshiper, 
Pharaoh would have worshipped, but he didn't. It didn't make a worshiper out of him. So apparently, this 21st century clamoring for empirical evidence, the Bible's been tampered with, and how can you know that this came from that? And I don't know. And um, Ramses had all kinds of evidence. It wasn't enough for him. Amazement is not enough to change my allegiance. What about the the Pharisees of Jesus' day? They see miracle after miracle right in front of their faces. And there's only biblical evidence. I'm thinking of two right now. There might have been more. There's only biblical evidence of a couple of them. I'm thinking, no, three now I'm thinking of that worshiped Jesus as Messiah, as God. The vast majority did not. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Saul of Tarsus. If there's another one, I'm just missing it right now. How can this group of people who know so many Bible verses and see the power of God right in front of their faces and it does not change their allegiance from self, I am awesome, I am religious, I am respected, I am cool, God loves me more than these other people. Amazement is not enough to change allegiance. The half-brother of Jesus, James, says, Hey, so you say that you believe in one God. Good for you. Even demons believe that. And shudder. What good is the power of God if it doesn't create worship inside of me? Is that a fair question? Because God is smarter than me. He didn't use it for no reason. He didn't smash Pharaoh for no reason. He doesn't unleash miracles for no reason. We're going to find out a couple of points from now why he uses his power. There are multiple answers, but we're going to talk about one of them. But right now we just need to do some deconstruction. Brothers and sisters, you thinking that Jesus Christ was and is really, really awesome, it's not enough. It's just not. Your respect for him is not enough. My admiration from him, not enough. I think, wow, he's just really the first awesome ethicist. Wow, Um, not enough. I could even believe in his miracles as the Pharisees did. But if it does not transform my heart so that I change allegiance and he is my king, then what good did it do me? And did he even benefit? He already said in John 4, my father is seeking worshipers. So if I don't end up in a place of worship, God's not happy and I didn't receive blessing. No one wins except Satan. Amazement is not enough. And we're going to, again, I don't want to deconstruct and leave you hopeless. There's lots of reconstruction in the rest of the sermon. I, just, I, need, I need to establish that. Listen to what Jesus said. Yeah, what about you? I essentially already said that. 
second. Let me, let me, okay, secondly, and this is uh, a theological bomb. I've said it before, but it's really, really hard, and it's right here in the text. We've got to hit on this again. You and I, we must desire what? Oh, boy. Obedience to God, not obedience to self, not obedience to my opinions, not obedience to my tribe, not obedience to my family. I must desire obedience to God if I am going to know him. If I'm going to be in relationship, reconciled to the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus is telling us right here in verse 17, and it's in other places in the Bible as well, and I've said it this way in the past, if you've been with us, desire, in my heart, it precedes my analysis of the facts. If I want to view Jesus Christ as a liar, I can take all of the information in as I analyze and just find tidbits to try to confirm my bias. Psychologists call it confirmation bias. I will find information because I have chosen in advance that this is what I believe. Desire comes first. Listen to Jesus in verse 17. Anyone, is that exclusive or inclusive? Anyone who wants to do the will of God, inclusive or exclusive? Totally exclusive. Most people don't want to do the will of God. But anyone is welcome into that desire will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. So whether, back to C.S. Lewis last week, whether Jesus is crazy, whether Jesus is a liar, or he's actually the savior of the world, you want to know? The first step is actually desiring to do the will of God. Or stated negatively, which also shows up in the Gospel of John. You did not have any desire ever or any intention to submit to God at all, so you coming to church and reading your Bible was a waste of time. You had no intention of submitting to the authority of God. You wasted your time. You decided in advance you didn't want anything to do with his lordship over you. That should scare every one of us very deeply. I have a will, even as a Christian, now that I have two selves, I have two wills. I have the flesh that hates God and, and dishonors, disrespects God consistently, and I have the spirit-filled self that is always and only honoring God and respecting God and following and obeying God. And I am this dancing contradiction in between the two wills until the Lord takes me home or I get hit by a Chevy. I am a contradiction. Not a smart car. If a smart car hits me, the driver's going to die. I'm over 300 pounds. But if a Chevy hits me, I just needed to clarify that. Desire precedes my analysis of the fact. If you desire, if I desire to do the will of God, if my intention is to submit to the deity that I'm investigating... He's going to show himself. You're going to see clearly whether Jesus' teachings are actually from God, a.k.a. he is the Messiah he's claiming to be in this statement, or he's just a liar. You'll know. You want access to truth? You have to desire it. 
That's the shorter way of saying it. And we are so deceived. We, every one of us, to a man or to a woman, we all think that we desire truth. And Jesus says, no, you don't. Now, if it's a fight between Greg Kaiser and Jesus, who's going to win? Right? So I can sit there and insist, no, 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 I really want truth. But if Jesus says, no, Greg, on this one you don't. You don't want truth, Greg, and that's why you're not arriving at agreement with me on this issue. You don't want it. Isn't it precious how patient Jesus is with us? Isn't it precious that maybe he brings about some surrender in my life that was 20 years coming, but I was stubborn, and God slowly whittled away that stubbornness until I was willing to agree with God on that issue? Because I didn't want the truth in that area. My conscience told me it was going to cost me something. And I don't want to pay the price of being wrong. You guys know that when God is right and we are wrong, it costs us something. We don't always want to pay that price because we don't trust our Father. You need surgery. That sounds scary. No, no, no. I'm a doctor. I'm telling you, you need surgery. (laughs) Right? It's about trust. It's always about trust. Let's get more to this hope that I was telling you guys was coming. Let's get positive here. Jesus didn't heal a man's legs so that the man could walk. He healed the man's legs to heal our unbelief. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. The crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath. You were amazed, but you work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses' law of circumcision, even though this tradition actually came from the patriarchs. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as to not break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and brings up, it's funny, conflict resolution. Like, how many of you, let's be honest, safe place, how many of you, when there's no resolution to a conflict, you would just love for it to never get brought up again? My hand's up, my hand's up, I'm I'm owning it, right? We all have different core temperaments. Jesus has gone back to Galilee, done more ministry after him doing a miracle and the religious elite getting all grumpy about it instead of celebrating and worshiping God. He comes back to Jerusalem, and instead of moving on with his next piece of teaching and his next sermon, he says, so about my last sermon, where I healed a guy and you couldn't even join in his joy and God's joy, you couldn't even celebrate because you decided you were smarter than God. I wanna, let's talk about that again. Anybody ever upset? when you really, really tried to get Jesus to move on to a different topic, but he won't do it? Because Jesus' objective, the fact that he's bringing it back up, proves that he wasn't just 
trying to heal a man's ability to walk physically. Jesus will not be satisfied until the miracle unleashes faith in the people around. That's the purpose of the miracle. Some of you guys have read in scriptures, Matthew, I think I wrote it down here, Matthew 13, 58. Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, and the last verse is heartbreaking. The narrative ends with, and Jesus did not perform many miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief. What? Because of their unbelief. Jesus isn't there so that we clap for him. He's not looking for applause. He's doing what his father does. He's seeking worshipers. If and when we respond with faith, he's going to keep doling out whatever power is necessary to create worshipers. And I've told you guys before, I would love to be wrong. I really, really would love to be wrong. But I think part of the reason, part of the reason the Western world sees so much less of the miraculous than what Africa and Asia see is because we will have a discovery channel reason to explain away God's power. And if he doesn't get his glory, he's not going to bother. We don't like that. We think we're entitled to healing. So we ask God, please heal this. And he's like, um, actually, I can see who will be made into worshipers and who won't. And you have a really, really dumb theory that you're about to pull out on my power. And then I will not get glory. No one will be reconciled to me. So no. And, and we would be tempted to think that God's a jerk because he says no to healing somebody. How could God say no? His objective isn't your legs. You and I pray so hard about our legs because we have no concept of how long eternity is. We're going to get however long it takes us to get to John 11. In John 11, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And before he even leaves town, he says to the disciples, man, it's a good thing that this is going down the way it is. Hmm? What? It's a good thing I didn't get there sooner where I would feel compelled out of my love for Lazarus, my love for his sisters, to heal him, which would have given God glory. Jesus has healed lots of other sick people. He says, this is for your benefit. You 12? Well, he knew one was, uh, yeah, not, not on board. The 11 of you, you need to see this. Because one day the Pharisees are going to drag you into court. And it's going to be really, really hard. Take back what you said or we'll kill you. Ah, yeah, I would love to, but I was there when Lazarus was pulled out of the tomb. And they essentially say that. We cannot help but testify to what we have seen and heard. That encompasses the entire ministry of Jesus. He said that the raising of Lazarus, Jesus wept, right? It was his friend too. His friend was dead and his friends were suffering. He empathized with all of it. Mourn with those who mourn. And he says it's for your benefit that this Lazarus actually goes through the full process of getting sick and dying. This is a good thing? In a broken world, yes. <laughs> because Jesus isn't out. To, we all, by the way, if you've been around church, you know Lazarus died a second time, right? He did not physically live forever. That wasn't a part of the deal. 
His death and his resurrection were for the benefit of those around that their faith would grow. You and I like to think we're really special and we're a snowflake and we're the center of the universe and God keeps showing even when he pours out mercy on us, it's not necessarily about us. Some of you right now, I, I shouldn't even have to ask it, but let me, let me go down this journey because I, I know you would say yes. Some of you right now have a sister or a father or a son or a niece that has no interest whatsoever in loving and serving Jesus Christ. And you're deeply concerned about them being reconciled to God because you're a Christian who believes Jesus' blood is the reconciling force. So I'm going to ask it, even though we all know the answer is yes. If God gave you the option of getting sick and dying, and somehow in the middle of that pain, your loved one would become a worshiper, would you go for it? You know the answer is yes, because who cares about this body? Who cares? It's coming back redeemed one day anyway. To live is Christ, to die is gain, I believe is how Brother Paul said it in Philippians 1. So there are your three points. The sermon's technically done. But we live in America. And so in an infomercial, after I've told you of all these amazing benefits, I have to say one thing every time. After I've told you this is available for three easy payments of twenty nine ninety five, I have to say, just when it should be wrapping up, I have to say the same sentence every time. Does anybody know what that sentence is? But wait, there's more. We have a bonus point today. I have to call it a bonus point because I don't want you guys to know that I preached a four-point sermon instead of a three. Pastor Greg went long. This is right there in the text, so we're going to talk about it. And it's also a really good lead-in to where this series, Hope 2020, is going to be. When I judge by outward appearance, I am almost always wrong. I tried to soften the blow. I didn't say you. I mean, you guys, you work it out with Jesus. I'm sure you're fine. You're not judgmental. You don't rush to conclusions. But me? Um, I think I'm always right. I think that I'm objective. I think that I am smart. I think that I am wise. And I think that in the... What's that word? Malayu? Greg, don't go too far out on that branch. Why do you say that word? Because the other word I know isn't church safe. What's the word for that? Smorgasbord of informational options that we, in which we live where we have to choose who to trust for our information. I am so wise that I choose all the correct sources of information, which means you guys are crazy. Right? If I arrive at my trust decisions out of my knowledge and my wisdom, then you have to be stupid or foolish. Ouch. Right? Talk about sowing disunity inside the family of faith. If I come to conclusions where you have to be stupid or foolish, where's the room for love and grace? Ouch. Allow me to 
Go back to what, the way Jesus said it. The last statement, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. What's he talking about? He just said, he just said what he's talking about. If you, too quickly, like if, if you've been in church for three months, you know that Jesus Christ died on a cross to save you from your sins, and everyone here is afraid of the book of Leviticus. Like, that's all you know about Christianity so far. You're just starting off. He is saying, with a cursory look at biblical ethics, you can see on the surface a contradiction of, we circumcise our sons on the eighth day, but there's also Sabbath. You can see that there's a contradiction, but you don't know how to gel. You, don't, you haven't thought through it and prayed through it the way that everyone else has who's been in the faith longer. And so there is a temptation to this snap judgment of hypocrisy, hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying, slow down, slow down. In the middle of the 18th chapter of Proverbs, our brother Solomon said this, every man sounds right as he shares until you hear the other side of the story. Everyone sounds right until you hear the other side of the story. Brothers and sisters, could we agree this is an important warning for us in the year 2020? Let alone the fact that when I cast judgment in my heart, I put myself on God's throne. It's weird. Sometimes we're afraid of theology. I'm afraid of those big words. Those are scary. I couldn't spell that with a whole scrabble bag. Omniscient, God knows all. Oh, what does that mean about Greg? Oh, I don't know everything. That's why we're scared of big words. We don't like their implications. Jesus doesn't have to slow down think it through, and gather lots of opinions to arrive at justice. He's perfect. The one who is morally perfect, the one who sees justice for what it actually is, he is telling his followers, slow down. Slow down. We're in a world that because of the internet flow of information is lightning fast. And the only thing faster than the internet, internet is my judgmental heart. Slow down, children. I see it perfectly and I'm in control. You don't have to judge. I'm going to judge. I can see it for what it is. Slow down, kids. Father, you are so gracious to us. You could have left us in all brokenness and error and lostness. 
And you didn't. You've chosen to speak to us the life and teachings of Jesus, the testimony of the apostles written down for us. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And Jesus, we need your appearance today in 2020. Our city does not feel their soul's worth and they've got to be told by us. And our state does not feel their soul's worth because they're still waiting for you to appear and you're going to appear. You're going to appear through our proclamation of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing in the world. God, the whole world so desperately needs your appearance. And only the Father has the judgment, the wisdom to talk about when that second coming, but the first coming, God, still bears so much weight. Our world is clamoring for hope and for peace. And Lord, we need your guidance on how to bring it. We need your guidance and your leadership. Jesus, for those of us online or here today who have not yet loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we've been transformed from the inside out, I ask your spirit to do it right now, today. As you, Jesus, said to Nicodemus, no one can explain where the wind is going or how it moves. And it's the same way with your Holy Spirit creating worshipers. So we don't understand it, God. We don't need to understand it. We just know that it's up to you and that we have the privilege of joining you in your work by asking for it. So God, birth children today by your spirit. And for those of us that already love you, God, would you please take us to our next step of obedience? God, would you make us a people who are filled with hope and filled with peace, even during a very dark and chaotic time? that we'd be able and ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. God, I ask by your mercy that there be people all over planet Earth that one day have the testimony. I was comfortable and I was happy and then COVID made me uncomfortable and unhappy to the point that I was willing to listen to what my Christian friends said about Jesus. Oh God, we trust your wisdom and sovereignty over this darkness. And may it make the light shine all the brighter. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray and God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.